Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's Robert M. Price, your friendly neighborhood Bible geek, 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 We just don't know. Bible Geek here. Maybe you uh, were hoping to be spared more of my blather this soon after the last one, but I had a few minutes and thought I'd uh, check in with you, because there's always loads of great questions to deal with, so why not? Uh, this one is from, uh, uh, let's see, my old pal Rabob, as I call him, in the fashion of uh, the uh, medieval uh, rabbis who were given these uh, various uh, clever nicknames, like uh, Rambam was uh, Rabbi Moses Maimonides, and uh, so on and so on. So, uh, Bob Crowd, in other words, says, I am reading Ezra Studies by C.C. Uh, Torrey. It is not an easy book to read for me, as my Aramaic is weak. Let me just pause, Bob, to be able to, you're already way ahead of me by simply using the phrase, my Aramaic, since I, the Bible geek, ain't got none. Anyway, Bob says, however, Tori is doing higher criticism. Today, higher criticism is criticism light. L-I-T-E, of course, because light is light, light. Anyway, the Journal of the uh, Society of Biblical Literature exemplifies this tendency in spades. Does the geek know who is really practicing higher criticism? Does he agree with my assertion? Rabob wants to know. Does the geek know of any good commentaries on the above from a higher critical standpoint? I must confess, Rabob, I have only read... Uh, Tory on Ezra and Nehemiah, and I find his work uh, very compelling. Uh, ditto for what he says about uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel. The guy was brilliant, and uh, perhaps a little too uh, radical for for the tastes of some. For instance, in my opinion, he just demolishes the whole idea of a third Isaiah. Uh, he shows that, nah, really, it's first and second Isaiah. Now, you might be able to break them down a bit, but there's no third Isaiah. That's all really part of second Isaiah. Now, there's some real good work done by people like Paul Hansen, who work with the idea that uh, Third Isaiah is a post-exilic uh, collection of oracles by anonymous popular prophets. But I just think, especially with uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, he's really, uh, Tori has really done the, the deed on that. And I can't advise, I can't recommend other commentaries, n- not because there aren't any good ones, but just because I uh, don't know about that. Uh, you you can tell me if you find another one that's half as good as C.C. Torrey, a, a neglected genius like yourself. Okay, uh, from Zvonimir uh, Brikalo, he's in Eastern Europe somewhere, I forget. He says, is Satan 
a kind of mythological Frankenstein monster? And if yes, what parts was he sewn together from? That's a great way of putting it. In fact, it's funny, among the figures uh, in my office, I've got uh, the Glenn Strange as the Frankenstein monster, and then there's uh, John Carradine as Count Dracula, and then the Kingdom Come Superman, and next to him, Lou from uh, Constantine, in other words, Lucifer. So we've kind of got both of these guys here. Um, yeah, uh, the original... Uh, uh, Satan was just a title, uh, not a name. It was Hasatan, the Satan. And uh, he was, uh, on the rare occasions he pops up in the Old Testament, he is God's chief uh, intelligence officer. He is zealous for God's reputation. A big thing that comes up in the Old Testament, right? Do this for thy name's sake, you know, for your reputation's sake. And uh, he uh, approaches Jehovah with uh, his people that are supposed to be so great, but he's not so sure. Like King David, he's your, he's the apple of your eye, oh chief. I bet he's not that faithful after all. What say we put him to the test. Uh, let's see if he, uh, though he says he relies on you, maybe he relies on horses and chariots. Let's, uh, let's suggest to him that he do a military census to see where his strength lies. If he realizes it's in you, well, he's the good guy you think he is, but I suspect not. Don't you want to know? And so he suggests it, and, uh, and uh, Dave falls for it and then pays for it dearly. Or Job, boy, there's the classic case. Uh, um, God is talking to the Satan who reports after his reconnaissance missions. He says, where you been? He says, I've been going to and fro all over the earth, uh, surveilling, obviously. What else is he doing? Just hitchhiking for fun. And um, he says, well, then you must have seen my servant Job. This guy's perfect in every way. He's completely righteous and worships me faithfully. And the Satan says, I wouldn't be too sure. I mean, come on, it's convenient. Look at all the goodies you shower on this guy. He'd be a fool not to worship you. He doesn't want to kill the goose that laid the golden egg by starting to sin. And uh, I bet you, if all of these goodies, these fringe benefits were taken away, he'd curse you to your face. And uh, God says, all right, you're on. Uh, go to it. Uh, just don't uh, harm him physically. And so he loses everything he has, including his uh, home, his children, all of his many possessions. And uh, his wife is none too thrilled about this and says, Job, forget it. You can't lose anything else. Why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, look, you're speaking like one of the foolish women would speak, implying she isn't one ordinarily, but she's sunk to it now. And he says, uh, you know, the Lord, Yahweh or Jehovah giveth and he taketh away. Um, and, uh, okay, go ahead, sucker. And uh, so, um, God uh, meets with his sons, and uh, the Satan is one of them, and he says, well, I, I guess uh, you've seen that I'm right, right? He still worships me. Well, yeah, but you made me pull my punches. Uh, you wouldn't let me afflict him bodily. Do that, and you'll see I'm right. And so he says, okay, go ahead. Sorry, Job. And uh, then he gets all these ailments and afflictions and so on, and it's a little unclear 
because different sources have been stitched together. But by the end of the book, it says that even then he uh, would not uh, turn on God and lose his faith. And so God turns out to be right. But you see what the Satan was doing. He's zealous for God's reputation and doesn't want to see him mocked, right? In Galatians, I think it is. God is not mocked. Well, he would have been if he uh, had been uh, soaking up all this praise from a sniveling yes man. And the Satan wants to make sure he's not. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, Surely God is omniscient. He's all knowing. He would know. Uh, This wasn't written by Thomas Aquinas, right? It's, it deals, it's like a fairy tale kind of a thing. Uh, And it's making a a real good point. And the, the issue is not uh, whether the author had an adequate God concept. The whole thing's really a parable. It's a Hebrew version of an old uh, Babylonian poem of the righteous sufferer, where uh, the same same problem, all these things happen, and what does the Babylonian counterpart do? He just looks up a magician and pays him a hefty sum to call off the demons that are uh, badgering him. So it's really silly. Uh, the, the Job thing, I think, is the masterpiece of the Bible. Anyway... There's another one where uh, there's uh, Joshua the high priest who's about to be ordained, but certain critics say, look at this guy's record. He's not worthy. And uh, the... uh and and sure enough, the Satan shows up and uh, starts accusing him. Uh, look at these black marks on his uh, record. And uh, the uh, the angel of Yahweh appears and says, uh, zip it, uh, Satan, God's purifying him and so on. But in all three of these instances, he, the Satan is not the adversary of God. Uh, his, does, his name does mean the adversary, the opponent, the prosecutor, but he's in the service of God, right? Now, after the uh, Babylonian exile, when uh, Jews are um, uh, exposed to Persian Zoroastrianism, they adopt quite a bit of it. In fact, I would say that uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and these guys, Persian uh, officials, though though ethnically Jewish, they really imposed a kind of Jewish Zoroastrianism on the people when they came back. Uh, so they have this evil anti-god Ahriman, who's opposed to Ahura Mazda, the wise lord. And uh, this was a theodicy, right? It was a, a theory that uh, would uh, get God off the hook. Why is the world filled with all this evil and adversity if it's run by a good God? God. Well, there, uh, I mean, doesn't he want it to be good? Uh, why doesn't he fix it? Well, uh, the uh, Zoroastrian dualistic explanation was, well, yes, he does. Ahura Mazda is righteous. He wants us to be. He wants the world to be sinless and uh, not, oh, he doesn't want any of this, uh, this awful stuff that's happening. But you see, he's in a prolonged battle with his enemy, uh, Ahriman, who is virtually his equal in power, albeit not in wisdom. And eventually, uh, Ahura Mazda must win out, but uh, he can't just snap his fingers and and destroy Ahriman. Uh, And uh, he's going to he's more likely to win if all of us fight on his side by doing good deeds. 
Well, this is another thing that was adopted by post-exilic Jews, but they didn't want to be dualists. They wanted to be monotheists, and so they demoted Ahriman and combined him with, with the Satan and said, okay, he's not really equal to God, but uh, he is responsible for evil in the world. I don't know if that really settles it, though, because you got to ask, well, did did God not allow this creep to do his duty? Uh, and uh, so um, Satan gets melded with Ahriman, and though in the Bible he continues his role as the one who uh, checks people out, the servants of God, and runs them through the, the, the ringer, through the, makes them run the gauntlet to prove themselves, uh, he, he also is thought of by the same people, who knows? By the same New Testament writers, I can't say. Uh, he's also uh, the evil arch fiend. Uh, the two may not be compatible, who knows? Uh, but uh, you've got him uh, putting Jesus through his paces right after he's you know, fresh from the Jordan baptism. Uh, the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tested or tempted, uh, same word in, in Greek, uh, by the Satan or the devil, which means the same thing. Uh, uh, it's uh, Diablos. Uh, it's almost the same in modern Spanish, right? And that means the hurler, the, the hurler of accusations, the, the caster of aspersions. And uh, so it means the same thing as the Satan. And uh, so he's, uh, he says, uh, if you're the son of God, as it says here, uh, why don't you do this and that and the other thing? And uh, uh, Jesus combats him by quoting Deuteronomy and, and so on. But is he trying to get Jesus to sin? No, he's trying to see if he will. And he doesn't. Well, all right. That's what we wanted to know. Um, at the Last Supper, when the disciples are about to prove themselves to be uh as yellow as a daffodil, uh, Jesus says to Peter, look, uh, Satan has demanded his prerogative of sifting you all like wheat, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, the men from the boys. Well, yeah, that's his job, right? And uh, in the book of Revelation, the accuser of our brethren, yeah, that's what he's supposed to do, uh, and and so forth. So he's still God's prosecutor, but there's this this evil Satan on the one hand combined with Ahriman, but on the other, uh, he is combined with Beelzebul. Remember the... Uh, the uh, Beelzebul controversy, Jesus is exercising people and the, the, his critics say, I don't believe it, it's just a parlor trick. He's casting out uh, demons by the help of the prince of the demons, Beelzebul. Uh, who was that? Well, he in turn was a Frankenstein sewn together from uh, a couple of old, uh, I think Sumerian, probably Babylonian, uh, gods, one of them was um, uh, Baal Ea, Ea the Lord. I mean, he is an old Sumerian character, uh, and it means Lord of the World. Uh, and the other one, uh, Baal Molil, the, uh, the, the Lord, which is what Baal means, of, uh, of the plagues and of the demons. And so once you have that, those two sewn together, 
then you uh, and then put together with the Satan, you have this odd thing where you've got this supremely powerful deity who is the uh, also the prince of the demons. And if you can bind him to your service, and that's what magicians did, uh, you could cast out the very demons he rules, and that's what they're saying Jesus does. In fact, I think originally the passage had Jesus defend that practice. He admitted it and said, well, of course, you can't despoil a strong man of his uh, ill-gotten gains unless you bind him first. But later Christians didn't like that so much. Uh, nonetheless, my point is, they talk about Beelzebul, and he says, how can Satan cast out Satan, implying Satan and Beelzebul are suddenly the same thing. Originally, they weren't, and in the 4th century Gospel of Nicodemus slash Acts of Pilate, somebody remembered that they still weren't, and they have Satan and Beelzebub, another version of the same name, um, as as uh, running uh, Hades, uh, and so on and so on. Well, it's only, it's first in Slavonic Enoch, second Enoch, roughly intertestamental, but it might be you know, the first century or so of the Common Era. You got uh, uh, a character called uh, Satanael, the uh, the divine, uh, the the, the uh, suffix L. Now he has become the adversary of God. And uh, so th that pretty much gives us the notion of Satan that goes forward in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And uh, so there's the, you know, <laughs> it's alive. Shoot, okay. Um, uh, let's see. My second question deals with the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Does God create the first humans or his version of humankind, a sort of prototype of what humans should be, based on his will or, or desire, unlike the humans other gods have created before him? I've read the first few chapters a few times and can't tell. Uh, I think what you're suggesting is a way of reconciling the priestly creation account where God or the gods create a, a, pa a passel of human beings all at once, male and female, he created them. Uh, and yet in the, the J or the Yahwist uh, creation account in Genesis 2 and 3, you have... Uh, Nobody, and then the Adam, the human being, uh, created from the dust of the ground. And, uh, and then he's supposed to be the only one, but God sees him as kind of lonely and creates another one from him, uh, the female, and then, you know, things get rolling. Why do you have to do that if he had already created the human race in the first chapter? Well, of course, the two stories are not supposed to go together. And uh, there have been various attempts to stitch them together, but none of them are plausible. But I think that's what's happened uh, there, that uh, they're just two alternate accounts of where the human race came from. Now, later on, in Philo and then the Kabbalah and so on, you do have the idea of uh, the heavenly Adam, the Adam Kadmon, a spiritual giant of a, of a human figure filling the universe, and he represents the projection, the objectification uh, of the creative reason of God himself, and he becomes the pattern for the creation of everything. He's an extension of the Logos, and, uh, and then further on, you have the, uh, the 
myth that uh, he was supposed to collect the sparks of light. Uh, it's, it goes into more detail than you could probably stomach. Uh, but he fails at it and is then shrunk down to the stature of Adam in Eden. He's clothed in a confining body of flesh and, and so on. And so, we, yeah, there was a heavenly prototype human being, uh, but uh, we are poor derivatives and vestiges of him. Boy, what fascinating stuff, I'm telling you. Read my uh, chapter on Ephesians in uh, Holy Fable, Volume 3. I get into some of that stuff. Thanks, Zmanamir. Okay, our uh, third contestant on the Bible Geek today is John. Whether John the Evangelist, John the Baptist, uh, John the Revelator, who knows. He says, like you, I was a fundamentalist, believing that the Bible was the ultimate authority and the evangelical faith, the literal legacy of Jesus. Now I find that the Bible is so suspect that nothing in it is reliable for faith and practice. The spirit slash soul slash mind of a person is the actual authority, given that any divinity that exists is inherent in him or her. My late friend Chris Henderson, not really a theologian, and maybe that's why he saw this uh, when others couldn't, he said, actually, everybody agrees uh, that there is a God. It's a question of where he is and what you call him. That if you're like Feuerbach and you say, well, there's no God up in the heavens, it's in you. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody kind of has a God concept. Interesting. Anyway, um, 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 yeah, uh, and, and about being your own authority, if you're supposed to read the Bible and obey it, you got to decide what it says, and so you are the authority. Yeah. Anyway, um, I recently ran across the work of Dr. Ashraf Ezat, hope I'm saying that right, an Egyptian physician. Uh, with an interesting ancient history hobby. His view is that the translators of the Septuagint, Greek Old Testament, either purposely changed the setting of the Old Testament from Arabia to Egypt. Indeed, many of the names, places, customs, etc. of the Old Testament patriarch stories can be located in Arabia. Well, also in sub-Saharan Africa, it may just be that there's, you know, a wide swath in which many of the customs are the same. Anyway, conversely, the Egyptian and Levant sites cannot be verified, you know, which, where's the Bible actually locating these things, indicating that the Bible has it all wrong. Uh, what do you know of this theory and what, if any, credence do you give it? Uh, I'm not. Uh, familiar with his work, but that sounds pretty dubious to me. Uh, and yet it is important to remember that a lot of the supposed identification of biblical sites in the Holy Land was the old pin the tail on the Bible approach to archaeology that William F. Albright uh, uh, pioneered, if you want to call it that. That implies it's a step forward, and I don't think it was. He assumed that uh, the Bible, like Genesis, is basically accurate. So let's look for Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's look for Bethel. Let's look for the stables of Solomon and all that. Oh, here's something. I bet that's it. We found it. Uh, hold on a second. Uh, that's like Queen Helena uh, sending guys to find the true cross. It must be there somewhere. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's important to realize 
is the archaeology of, of the Bible is none too secure, but this theory seems to know a bit more than I think we know also, to be able to say, well, this sounds more like Egypt than, uh, than ancient um, Israel. Well, you know, in the patriarchal period, if there was one, um, this is in the aftermath of Egypt ruling Canaan. Uh, so you, you would have uh, Egyptian references and names and, and so forth. So I don't know, but I have to admit I'm not familiar with it, and uh, so I can't really pretend to judge it. It sounds dubious to me, though. But I am always in favor of exploring new theories, the more wacky-sounding they are. Sometimes, because I always figure, well, people wouldn't. Nobody would believe this if it were utter nonsense. Well, sometimes it is, but it's worth checking out to see if it is. And it's worth saying, could so-and-so have seen something that's been hidden in plain sight? Just finished reading and reviewing a book, I mentioned this the other day also, called Creating Christ uh, by the authors uh, Valiant with two L's and Fahey, F-A-H-Y. You can get it on Amazon. The subtitle is, Did the Roman Emperors Create Christianity? And this basically is not a new theory, but it's some new arguments, and it's put in such a way that what I once considered utter nonsense, I now think quite seriously. I take it quite seriously. I'd certainly recommend the book, Creating Christ by Valiant and Fahey. Take a look. Uh, my review will appear in the next or possibly the one after that issue of the Journal of Higher Criticism. All right. Uh, thanks, John. Oh, who's next? Uh, oh, it's my one black friend. I wonder if that's if they got room for that on a driver's license. I am a Christ mythicist and an atheist, but when I believed in God, I hardly knew anything of the Bible. I haven't started publishing videos on YouTube revealing my revelation about the Bible. Hallelujah, but I'll get to it. Did the writer of 2 Timothy leave us a clue about division in the early church, or even worse, uh, reveal that not everyone thought Jesus had returned? Uh, you mean, uh, it could also be that I'm misinterpreting what I'm reading. Please help. Uh, this is this. Yeah, okay, this is it. 2 Timothy uh, 2.14. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Uh, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and... Let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. In verse 18, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some? 
revealing that the writer thinks Jesus is dead or uh, still, or the saints are yet to rise from the dead. I'd really appreciate any details you could share. Well, yeah, I, I think almost certainly this refers to realized eschatology, the view of the Gnostics and others, including the uh, author of the Gospel of John, um, that uh, the resurrection and the coming of the kingdom of God can only be observed with the eye of faith, that they're not external events. My kingdom is not of this world. Unless you were born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, this is a, a recurring tendency in apocalyptic religions that make a prediction that <laughs> he's coming back soon, I tell you. The dead will rise. Uh, the, these predictions are constantly made and constantly disappointed. And what do people do? Well, sometimes they say, oh my God, what an idiot I was. Um, I'm better moved to another town where nobody knows me. I'll never hear the end of it. Uh, hey, Frank, uh, you, uh, how's heaven? Did you get raptured when you said you would? Uh, no, I, I better get out of here and change my name. The, the um, uh, two witnesses protection program, you might call it. Uh, you could do that. Or you, it's just like the guys on the road to Emmaus. Who boy, we thought this guy was going to liberate Israel. <laughs> uh, better luck next time. Uh, well, the other option is to say, oh, well, you know, just a slight adjustment it did happen, but invisibly. Uh, you you had to have the eye of faith, like the, some of the witnesses supposedly to the golden plates of Joseph Smith said, oh yeah, we saw him. And then later on they said, well, we, we kind of saw him with the eye of faith. In other words, you didn't see him. And uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, oh, Christ is coming back in 1918. Whoops. Oh, well, uh, he did, but he assumed the throne in heaven, the Adventist Christ. Christ is coming back to cleanse the temple of the earth of sin. Oops, uh, the date passed. And they said, well, he did it. It's just in heaven, not on earth. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. It's, it's very common to say it did happen, but it was spiritualized. So you need to, to wake up to the fact that the kingdom of God is here now and unlock the power that it's given you, yeah, yada, yada, yada. That happens all the time, and I think that's what's happened. Of course, uh, time had passed, no second coming, and uh, people were saying, oh, well, the resurrection already happened. It's just like in the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, or When will uh, the repose of the dead be? Uh, and when will the kingdom come? And Jesus says, what you expect has already happened. You just don't recognize it. Yeah, that's what I think Hymenaeus and Philetus, whoever they were, uh, were saying. And the Catholicizing author of Second Timothy don't like that. Uh, he wants, oh, no, no, he's still coming back. Don't get misled. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that's it, actually. Sounds very strange, but once you know about what else is going on in early Christianity, not that odd. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see, who is this and this is uh, Laura. I uh, can't think of her last name, but we've had a couple of real good questions from her recently. I'm having trouble with the suggestion that Paul's hometown of Tarsus, or Tarsaeus, or Tarsia, it also occurs, it, as mentioned in, is mentioned, 
Oh, I'm sorry. I'm having trouble with the suggestion that Paul's hometown of Tarsus, as mentioned in Acts but never mentioned in the epistles, was inspired by 2 Maccabees. The original Greek text reads, 2 Maccabees 3, 5, Egthen pros Apollonion Tharseu ton kat ekenon ton kairon koiles uh, Surius Kai Phonike Stratigon and Second uh, Maccabees four four Apollonion Menestheos Ton Koilas Surius Kai Phonike Stratigon. Questions What is the argument for reading this as Apollonius from uh, whoops from Tharseus versus Apollonius, son of Tharseus, is what, which is what most English translations do. Is if you say Apollonius of Tharseus, that could mean either uh, who hails from there or is the son of, because it's just a question of the the uh, um, the the genitive and all that stuff. Uh, well, I don't know. Got to admit, uh, I, I think you can take it either way. Uh, two, what is the current thinking about why Apollonius is from or the son of Tharseus in one spot and then from or son of uh, Menestheos in another spot? Uh, do, do we know of a historical Tharseus or Menestheos? Uh, Apollonius was a real person, so maybe someone knows who his dad was. Yeah, sure, it could be. Um Actually, I'm not sure we have a problem. It could be that one place, in one of these instances, it does mean that uh, he is the son of Tharseus, uh, and in the other, they mean uh, that he is, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that he's from Tharseus, and in the other, son of Menestheos. Uh, it, it would sound the same. I, I would think that might be the case. That would be an instance of a legitimate harm, though speculative harmonization. Uh, I don't know uh, what evidence we have for Tharseus or Menestheos, got to admit. Uh, how definitive is it that Tharseus in Second Maccabees is the same word as Tharseus uh, in Acts? Greek names wiggle around with cases, but can we also explain the TH versus T if they both supposedly refer to the same extant historical place? You got me there. I, I just don't know. Uh, five, is it not simpler to imagine that because Paul's letters mention uh, evangelism in Syria and Cilicia, the Acts elaboration just picked a town in Cilicia to assign retroactively as his hometown to make it more plausible that a Jerusalemite could have gotten that much traction up in Asia Minor. The Damascus Road plot is indeed reminiscent of 2 Maccabees 3, so I understand that the Acts author could have lifted the Tarsus idea from there at the same time as lifting at the same time as lifting the plot. But is that the most probable explanation? Maybe, again, it's simpler to think that Damascus Road and 2 Maccabees reflect a common conversion story prototype. Well, the fact that it also seems 
Oh, uh, so yeah, I've, I've read your article that mentions the link, and I'm hoping you can elaborate further on that based on my questions above. Um, actually, I don't think I dogmatize about this. It's just that there's so many other features in common between 2nd Maccabees 3 and the, uh, the Paul story in Acts that it seems to me it wouldn't make a lot of sense that this is another one, but y you can't be sure of that, and I don't pretend to be, but I wouldn't be surprised. Also, I tend to shy away from common sources, though, uh, that they both depend upon. Like, people like to say, well, maybe Second Peter isn't copying the Epistle of Jude. Maybe they're both using a common, well-known text. Well, it could be, but you're just uh, introducing epicycles, so to speak. You're just complicating the thing. Uh, seems to me it's much simpler just to say, hey, this text looks almost exactly like this one. Uh, and uh, I, I'm guessing, why well, think that they both copied a third one? Maybe they did, but unless you got some evidence, uh, you're just needlessly complicating the, the argument. And uh, I would think that's the case here. Plus, the fact that it, the uh, conversion of Paul's story also just has to be taken in part from Thucydides. I'm sorry, uh, sheesh, what am I saying? Uh, uh, Euripides the Bacchae uh, makes me think it's more likely that he's drawing upon two well-known literary sources. But, of course, there's no way to know, Laura. Uh, I should be asking you some of these grammatical and lexical questions. So, nice work. Keep on stumping me. Oh, let's see. Uh, this is John. No, not that John. I'm a long-time listener and second-time emailer. It's been a while that I came up with what I hope are interesting questions for the show. One, last time I mentioned the books of Enoch and Jubilees, and you mentioned these books never made it into the canon because of the Deuteronomic reform. My question here is, what was the purpose for this reform, and what uh, what it did for the canon? Was this where Judaism decided it needed an orthodoxy and went with the most mainstream books and eliminated what might... Uh, what might have, I think I got a typo here, uh, been called uh, sect books, in other words, books belonging to a smaller Jewish group, not part of the mainstream, and this is why things like Enoch, Jubilees, um, Baruch, and others are not part of the canon today. Um well, it's hard to say. Uh, the, these guys, I mean, th there must have been a lot of people that didn't follow the Deuteronomic reform. And you might remember, I am probably a minority of one on this. Uh, Margaret Barker probably thinks I ought to be committed to the insane asylum because I agree with her about the incredible importance of the Deuteronomic reform. It's kind of like uh, the Yavna Sanhedrin much later. It, it reconstituted Judaism, but she thinks it happened in uh, the, the uh, what was it, the 6th century BCE at the time of Josiah, whereas I think it happened in the 2nd century in the Hasmonean period and uh, excluded the, uh, the, the sectarian apocalyptic groups like the Essenes, the Zealots, and Mandeans, and various others. 
and it it uh, opted for a closed canon. Josephus talks about it, the closing of the canon, and uh, that they the books they got rid of were apocalyptic visionary works. Okay, there's a little bit left, uh, some stuff in Zechariah, and obviously some stuff in Daniel, uh, but. Um, I'm guessing the Daniel apocalypse was uh, not excluded because it was uh, kind of a credential for the uh, Hasmonean authorities. But the other wild stuff either made it in too – well, it didn't make it in because they appeared too late after this reform and said, okay, no, uh, the Deuteronomic uh, people said – no, no more. These old ones are good enough. Or they, some of them may still have been around, like First Enoch is probably, parts of it are probably as old as Daniel, that it just seemed too wild and wacky for them. And, uh, but the, uh, the fact that all these books are included with the Qumran library and so forth implies that there was a substantial Jewish readership for them too. Uh, these people may have been like Buddhists who did not think you needed a an official canon list or Hindus also, right? the more the merrier. And uh, there's this book called The Three Temples. Ooh, I forget the author's name. Uh, but she describes the exclusion of this type of Judaism in terms that are so similar to what Margaret Barker says but locates in the 6th century that I think that uh, in line with the the sense it makes to late date so much of the Old Testament uh, that uh, the the, uh, Deuteronomic reform was 2nd century too. And uh, now they may not have been the mainstream at the time. I, it may be, you know, the, the Phariseeism evolved into rabbinic Judaism, and the other groups died away pretty much because of the Roman conquest. And uh, so it may be that uh, that the uh, Pharisees and their type of Judaism was lucky enough. Uh, well, I don't want to just say luck. They had a lot of wisdom that made them survival worthy. Um, that uh, you were left by default with their canon. But there were a lot of books that wouldn't exist, uh, even in the few copies we have today, had had they not had their partisans, people that believed they were holy scripture. Uh, okay, um, uh, let's see. Speaking of books not in the canon, and by the way, it's C-A-N-O-N, uh, the canon with three N's instead of two is the weapon. Uh, what is your opinion on uh, second and third Enoch? Not a single church group ever canonized these books. Never really read from them. My never really read them myself. Are they very old books or more uh, later forgery? Well, pseudepigraphy. I don't regard that as simply. A fraud. Uh, there have been pious frauds, but you never know. These people that are visionaries themselves might have thought that they were channeling stuff. Uh, I uh, have Holy Fable 4 coming out, uh, a critical study of modern scriptures, and one of the books I spend a lot of time on is the Aquarian Gospel of Jesus Christ. 
uh, and uh, written in the early 20th century. Well, this guy said he was getting it from the Akashic Records. I don't think he was just lying. I mean, his own poetic skill comes through in there, but, you know, even defenders of the inspiration of the regular Bible say that didn't preclude the uh, scriptural author's own talents. Um, as Benjamin Warfield said, uh, if God wanted a set of epistles like Paul, he made a Paul to write them. Well, anyway, I don't think they're just frauds. They certainly record uh, current beliefs of these groups. Um, Second Enoch or Slavonic Enoch, that, that must have been considered scripture by some people. Uh, I mean, I suppose you can draw lines of deuterocanonicity. It's like the Apocrypha is all used to have among Protestants. Like Luther said, oh, they're edifying books, all right, but not really divinely inspired, but they were part of the Bible, still sort of an appendix. Who knows? But uh, Slavonic Enoch must have been considered a sacred book simply by the fact that we have even a single copy of it in Old Russian or Slavonic. Nobody's going to copy that just for the hell of it, right? Some must have considered it a sacred book and probably thought the stuff in there came from Enoch. We don't exactly know when it was written. It's generally thought to be later than First Enoch or Ethiopic Enoch because we have our whole our full copies of it are from Ethiopia and written in uh, Ethiopic and uh, but we have some Aramaic fragments of it from Qumran so it was widespread uh, this one uh, th that was parts of it were it's a Pentateuch of five Enochian books actually some of them as I just said probably second century BCE like Daniel some of them could be later, it's, but it's generally thought to be a first century BCE, CE, or if you prefer BCAD work. Slavonic Enoch appears to be a bit uh, younger than that, uh, but it could be second or third century CE, we don't know. Um, it's very difficult to uh, date these things unless they have historical predictions that you can trace and see that they've been made into predictions after the fact, etc., Right, uh, well, um, third Enoch is Hebrew Enoch, and this is one of the Hekaloth texts, uh, and uh, those were mystical accounts of uh, a visionary ascensions in, well, they would say descents, I don't know why, into the heavenly throne room. And uh, these books apparently are more like the 6th century, and uh, but they certainly seem to embody a lot of very old traditions. In fact, I, I don't know what the basis for dating them is, um, if you can get behind the manuscript tradition, because uh, like, you, you don't assume necessarily that the... Uh, like they don't assume that the Nag Hammadi texts, though they must have been copied in the fourth century, they they don't assume that was that they were written de novo at that time. They tend to think that they're all second century works that were copied and copied, and so the the same is probably true there. You can get all of these in more than one translation. Just well, a year or so ago, I got the English translation of the Hekaloth texts, including. We've had Third Enoch for a good while, and I think that's even included in the um, Doubleday uh, Charlesworth collection of the uh, Old Testament Apocrypha. Fascinating.
okay. Third question. Would things such as horoscopes count as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Since Christians claim these things are not of God. So did early Christians consider astrologers and polytheists as being incapable of being saved because they committed an unforgivable sin? No, I, I don't think so. In fact, uh, the Gospel of Matthew speaks implicitly of astrology commendably, because how do the three wise guys, uh, Larry, Moe, and Shemp, uh, know that uh, a new king has been born to Israel? They saw his star in the east. Well, that certainly means they had it all plotted out as to what uh, astrological or heavenly phenomenon in certain constellations meant. Oh, there's big doings over there in Judea. Did you see that? And so on. there's uh there are uh condemnations of the worship of the stars in the Old Testament that was an Assyrian cult that was imported into Israel as a sign of uh the Israelite kings becoming vassals of the Assyrian emperors uh, and eventually they got rid of it the hosts of heaven they were called but on the other hand, uh, the Bible also speaks of angels and stars as being pretty much the same thing. Uh, and if you're going to talk that way, it's not but a small step to astrology. And there certainly have been Christian astrologers. For instance, um, uh, what's his name? Philip Melanchthon, uh, one of the one of the uh, disciples of Martin Luther was a big time astrologer. Uh, they figured God created all this stuff. And what does it say in Genesis one? Uh, they're, they're the lights rule the earth. Well, they, they tell you, uh, well, astrologers would always plot the passage of time and stuff by the stars. And, uh, it's, uh, so we know some, I think Isaiah somewhere condemns, uh, uh, the, uh, what would you call it, astromancy, uh, plotting the future and your fortune by the stars. But uh, that in itself means that there were fellow Jews who did that stuff. And uh, so that you'd have a difference of opinion there. And uh, there are certainly Christians today who believe in astrology. And, and uh, they, again, they say that's part of the design of the creation, now, many others, obviously most others probably don't believe it or don't have an opinion on whether it is orthodox or not. They just think, well, it seems to work, what the heck, uh, and they don't see any real uh, conflict. I mean, you're not necessarily abandoning, abandoning faith in divine providence. You would probably see it as uh, a way of discerning divine providence. Now, I don't know why you wouldn't if you thought there was reason enough to believe it. Um, the 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 blasphemy against the spirit remains a point of contention among fundamentalists. Uh, I don't know if Cat- well Catholics, of course, say that, uh, and I think they're right about this. That the New Testament speaks of unforgivable mortal, or in other words, lethal sins. In First John, it says if if you know somebody who's committed one of those, forget it. Don't even bother praying for him. It's too late. The guy sealed his own doom. Of course, he doesn't tell us what that would be. Right? That's a clever little stratagem. Yeah, there's uh, there are sins that are unforgivable. You just bought yourself a one-way ticket.
take it to the inferno, buddy. Uh, oh, well, which is that? I I'm not going to tell you because then you might feel free to commit the less serious ones, the venial sins. Uh, so for all you know, anything, you know, overeating might be an uh, unforgivable sin. So you better keep your nose clean, pal. I've told this story, but not very recently. Once when I was going to a Baptist church in New Jersey, I was in high school, and the high school, uh, Sunday school, happened to be talking about uh, Catholicism that day. And uh, the, the uh, teacher said, does anybody know the two categories of sins according to Roman Catholicism? <laughs> This guy, a friend of mine, uh, said, uh, yeah, uh, mortal and venereal. <laughs> well, uh, this guy's now a practicing physician. He's, you know, very, very adept and astute, but that was pretty funny. Uh, well, uh, so mortal sins, yeah, but uh, blasphemy against the spirit, the only hint given in that passage in Matthew and Luke, uh, where Jesus warns him not committed, uh, what does he say? Uh, wh what's he answering? And they say, eh, he's not, uh, is what I mentioned before, the Beelzebul controversy. It's just parlor tricks. He's casting out demons by the aid of the prince of the demons. It's all a charade. And Jesus says uh, to them, uh, if if I am casting out demons uh, by Beelzebul, well, ask your own exorcist. Do you think they're doing that? Uh, you, of course you don't. Well, then why are you thinking I'm doing that? And he says, uh, all sins will be forgiven men except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say, because they said he's casting out um, demons by Beelzebul. Well, at least, I mean, who knows what the original logion, the original saying was intended for, but at least the comment in Q uh, is that, uh, well, what he means is they were attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to demons. Uh, and I've always said to people that say, uh, well, you know, only Christianity is true and all those things where, let's say, the nation of Islam, uh, they have straightened out prisoners and got them off drugs. I mean, that, that sounds good, but those are really just satanic counterfeits uh, to lead people astray. My reaction is, hey, have a care, my friend. You may be found... Uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit by chalking up his deeds to Satan, uh, watch out. Uh, and um, that's an interesting point, but at least the only comment we have from a New Testament writer is that's the denotation of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Um, though, again, let me bore you with details. Uh, the, the saying by itself... Uh, you know, where it says, um, uh, the, the, there are a couple of versions of this, a Markan version and a Q version. And it says, uh, I think it's in the Markan one, all sins will be forgiven men, which sounds kind of like universalism, except this, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In the Q version, I think it says the, the men part is in a different spot in the sentence, I think the more original one, where it says, uh, whoever blasphemes 
the Son of Man may be forgiven, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit has no forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Uh, What's the difference there? Well, the Son of Man, as many places in the Bible, simply denotes human beings. And the point of it was, you can badmouth or revile a fellow human and get forgiveness for that. But um, whoever blasphemes the divine spirit, it's just a way of saying God. In fact, you're bending over backwards, right? You don't want to risk misusing the name of God, even the less serious one. I mean, forget about Jehovah. You're saying Elohim. You, you don't even want to say that if you don't have to. So you say the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, if you blaspheme God, you're in a heap of trouble. You will never be forgiven. So I think the point of it originally was simply blasphemy. You you can say uh, humans can be blasphemed, but that usage has passed away. But we have to remind ourselves of it that that's, uh, that's probably what that saying meant. Mm, okay, one more. Um, I listened to an old show and someone brought up Watchman Nee and Witness Lee and the local church. Um, also mentioned were the Plymouth Brethren. What are these two groups like? I haven't heard much about them uh, except what I can gather. From what I can gather, the Plymouth Brethren seem like a radical fundamentalist sect, maybe not to the extreme as, say, the Amish, but quite extreme from the little bit I know. Knee was part of the Plymouth Brethren. Yeah, there are many different uh, sub-sects of uh, the Plymouth Brethren because they are uh, fractious, is that the word? Fissiparous? They they uh, split over increasingly uh, Trivial minutia, they don't think it's trivial, but uh, I'm sorry, I can no longer have fellowship with you because you're blowing your nose after church. Uh, Anyway, um, let me just give you something I uh, got off, I think, of Wikipedia here, because I knew I wouldn't remember this. Uh, Watchman Nee was introduced to the writings of... um, uh, D.M. Panton, Robert Govett, G.H. Pember, Jesse Penn Lewis, T. Austin Sparks, and others. In addition, he acquired books from the Plymouth from Plymouth Brethren teachers like John Nelson Darby, uh, William Kelly, and C.H. McIntosh. Eventually, his personal library encompassed over 3,000 titles on church history, spiritual growth, and Bible commentary, and he became intimately familiar with the Bible through diligent study using many different methods. In the early days of his ministry, he is said to have spent one-third of his income on personal needs, uh, one-third uh, one to assist others, and the remaining third on spiritual books. Uh, he was known for his ability to select, comprehend, discern, uh, and uh, memorize relevant material and grasp and retain the main points of a book while reading. Need derived many of his ideas, including, including plural eldership, um, you know, not just one pastor, but a bunch of elders, uh, disavowal of a clergy-laity distinction and worship centered around the Lord's Supper from the Plymouth Brethren. From 1930, 
1935, his movement was associated, associated internationally with the Raven-Taylor group of Exclusive Brethren, which in 2012 was renamed the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. As, as I told you, there are many competing Plymouth Brethren groups, which, quote, recognized the local church movement, capital L, capital C, movement as a parallel work of God, albeit one that had developed independently. Nee refused, however, to follow their practice of isolating themselves from other denominations, the brethren, that is, and rejected their ban on celebrating the Lord's Supper with other Christians. He also expressed concern about in increasing authoritarianism in the exclusive brethren and what he saw as the creeping concentration of power in the hands of James Taylor Sr. Matters came to a head when it became known that Nee had worshipped with non-brethren Christians like T. Austin Sparks during a 1933 visit to the United Kingdom and with non-brethren missionaries during a United, <laughs> United States visit in 1935. Um, Nee received a letter dated 31 August 1935, signed by leading brethren, excommunicating him and his movement. Can you believe this, right? Oh, what a scandal! What, child molesting? Uh, adultery? Uh, no, uh, dealing in prayer and evangelism with non-Plymouth brethren fundamentalists unbelievable. Uh, they were just devouring their own kind, and uh, they've remained... I don't know if you still have ugly uh, sectarianism like this anymore, but I guess you do. Uh, my old pal uh, Ed Swoman and my co-author of uh, Evolving Out of Eden, he was in an extreme conservative Lutheran sect very much like this, and and uh, there are plenty of... Uh, he was, he's not now. Um, so, uh, yeah, and Witness Lee, ah, man, he, he was a colleague of Watchman Nee. Ah, I tend to forget exactly what direction he took the local church, but it, it had to do with some sort of explanation of Trinitarianism. And uh, when you try to explain the Trinity, it's like the third rail. Uh, you're, you're really risking accusations of heresy. I deal with the question of uh, what are you believing, if anything, if you believe in the Trinity? Uh, and in my book that's in the works right now, Jesus Christ Superstition, it's going to appear from uh, Pitchstone Press very shortly. Um, knee is is a really interesting writer. I deal with him a good bit in Jesus Christ Superstition. He he was a very insightful student of the Bible and uh, a, a very deeply pious fundamentalist. It was really a living faith with this guy, though I think uh, it it uh, sort of spilled over into neurosis, uh, the the kind of introspective, almost paranoid piety that fundamentalism uh, creates. 
Uh, and uh, I recommend my own book, self-servingly, but I think you'll really enjoy it. All kinds of good stuff in there. Well, that's it for today's exciting episode of The Bible Geek. I much appreciate your being with me. Your contributions are very gratefully accepted, and your questions just as much. Keep them coming. Thanks a bunch. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.